welcome to On Jordan, a podcast on the latest developments in Jordanian politics, featuring interviews with experts on the Hashemite Kingdom. My name is Aaron Magid, a former Oman-based journalist now in Washington. When Jordan won independence from the British in May 1946, the country had a population of approximately 400,000, but the number of residents dramatically increased following two waves of Palestinian refugees into the kingdom following the 1948 and 1967 Middle East Wars. While there is no official government tally due to the topic sensitivity, the New York Times estimated that up to 60% of Jordan's population is of Palestinian origin. In this episode, we'll focus on the dynamics between Jordanians of East Bank background and individuals of Palestinian descent, most of whom were born and raised in the Hashemite Kingdom and hold Jordanian citizenship. We'll discuss the chances of a Jordanian citizen of Palestinian descent to serve in advance in the country's intelligence directorate along with the kingdom's electoral laws that have been impacted by these demographic tensions. To delve into this complex topic, it's great to welcome Professor Sean Yam to the podcast. Dr. Yam is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Temple University and expert in Jordanian politics. He has written multiple books, including From Resilience to Revolution, How Foreign Interventions Destabilize the Middle East, and the upcoming book, Jordan, Politics in an Accidental Crucible. Thank you for joining us, Professor. It's my pleasure. In the early decades after Jordan became independent, what were the dynamics between Jordanians of East Bank background and individuals of Palestinian descent in Hashemite Kingdom? Look at the 1960s and 70s, apropos your question. The traditional narrative is that this is a time period of worsening tensions and frictions between those of Palestinian heritage and those of East Bank or Transjordanian origin. And by that, I think most, most analysts like myself typically mean in shorthand, tribe. You know, the, the traditional narrative uh, holds that relations between the two and the domestic sphere begin to worsen markedly after the late 1950s, when domestic repression picks up um, rapidly against democratic activism and civil society. And it really punctuates into a low point after the 67 Arab-Israeli War and the 1970 Black September Civil War. At that point, there begins to form what a lot of us academics call a kind of a, a segregated political economy uh, or a, an even a borderline ethnocracy, whereby those of Palestinian origin uh, are seen by some Transjordanian government officials and, and, and those in the army and, and East Bank nationalists uh, as outsiders, as glorified guests as treasonous minorities or a fifth column who came to Jordan on the graciousness of the Hashemites, but then overstayed their welcome by hosting Palestinian guerrilla movements, the Fideiyin in 1970, who tried to overthrow King Hussein. And there begins to form a pretty rabid and unfortunate, and in many ways, racist discourse against Palestinians uh, at, by the 1970s among the East Bank and Transjordanian nationalists. And inversely, I think many Palestinian, uh, much of the Palestinian discourse in literature, uh, particularly if you look at not just the outside writings of the PLO, but some of the writings of Palestinian Jordanians in this time, there begins to circulate uh, currents, I think, of anxiety, uh, of injustice, of indignity, of a question about why they were being blamed for problems that they didn't necessarily cause. And so the 1960s and 70s are decades where Jordan has a Palestinian majority demographically because of the 48 and 67 wars. But I think the overall conception of Palestinians in Jordan among Transjordanians, those of primarily tribal origin, 
who staff the army, run the state, and uh, look to the Hashemite regime as the preferred political order uh, in Jordan, relations between them and these Transjordanians begin to decline pretty precipitously until it ends up in an, a not just a segregated political economy again, but just a, a blatant ethnocratic uh, system in some parts of the country uh, by the 1970s. So jumping closer to the present day, while the Hashemite kingdom allowed over 650,000 Syrian refugees into the country during the early years of Syria's civil war, Jordan's prime minister, Abdullah Nusur, said in 2013, Jordan has made a clear and explicit sovereign decision to not allow the crossing to Jordan by our Palestinian brothers who hold Syrian documents. They should stay in Syria until the end of the crisis, quote unquote. So why did Jordan insist on blocking specifically Palestinian refugees from Syria into the kingdom? And again, I, I, I think it goes back to the, 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 the ambivalence and anxieties, which, is all, which have always shadowed how Palestine and Palestinians are treated in Jordan. And so if we jump from the 1960s and 70s to now, I think we, we see that ambivalence continue to linger. And that's partly why I think the Jordanian government then did not make allowances for Palestinian refugees coming uh, from Syria. Um, and that ambivalence begins to come to a real head if we make a midway point in between these two time periods in the 1990s. So if we think about the 60s and 70s as a period of worsening tensions and political frictions and social segregation uh, in Jordan between those of Palestinian heritage and those of Transjordanian origin, then we begin to see a kind of relenting up and a warming of relations, I would say, by the late 1980s through the 1990s. And by warming, I don't mean there was a national compact. I don't mean there was a top-down maneuver. I don't mean there was a major historical shift that suddenly reset social relations. There has always been intermarriage. Uh, these, the, these narratives of both East Bank nationalism and Palestinian identity, they've never been coherent. There's always been overlap and so forth. But the 1990s, that's when you begin to see in the last decade of King Hussein, the Jordanian state begin to exercise a way out of that ambivalence. So on the one hand, the Jordanian state, and this will bring us to the current day. This is why I'm, I'm going back in time again a few decades. The 1990s, the Jordanian state is still a state where the army is staffed by Transjordanians, where the public workforce is largely Transjordanian, and, and, and where the Hashemite monarchy still sees the Transjordanians and most of its tribes as its primary social foundation. The 1994 Jordanian-Israeli uh, Peace Treaty, Jordan begins to, I, I would say, formalize uh, its emphasis on not just a two-state solution and a fair and just outcome for the Palestinians, but it begins to finally understand that the ambivalence surrounding its own Palestinian uh, uh, residents, most of whom are citizens, and uh, and whose eventual location the Jordanian state has never truly known if there is a sovereign and uh, dignified Palestinian state in the West Bank, it begins to wrestle with that ambivalence because the peace treaty now means that Jordan can no, can no longer treat Israel as its existential formal enemy in foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, this brings us to the current day. If the, if the Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty in 94 forced the Jordanian state and government to begin to reckon with the fact that even if there were a Palestinian state that crystallized uh, primarily on the West Bank, 
that most Palestinians in Jordan who have citizenship and have been thoroughly integrated into the Jordanian economy and society for generations, but most of them will not vacate the East Bank, I think that recognition begins to, I think, induce a gritty realization on the part of many state leaders that Jordan already being a Palestinian majority state and likely will will remain a Palestinian majority state, even if there is a successful two-state solution, cannot take more Palestinians from the outside. Uh, The reason I think why Ensur, and if we're being very honest, we all know it was not simply the prime minister who made that decision. Uh, The reason why the Jordanian government under Ensur did not accept more Palestinian refugees and has always been wary of that is because uh, I think of that recognition sprouted in the 1990s, that Jordan is now not just a party, but an advocate uh, diplomatically now to this two-state solution involving Israel and Palestine. But if there were a successful Palestinian state that arises west of the Jordan River, most of the Palestinians in Jordan, who are, again, citizens and many of whom are generationally rooted in the terrain of Jordan's demography and society and the economy, are not going to simply uproot their lives and go to the West Bank uh, simply because it is a new Palestinian state. They're going to stay in Jordan because they're an integral part of Jordan, and rightly so. And I think that recognition means on the Jordanian leadership side that demographic questions of making Jordan an even more majority Palestinian state have to be either uh, delayed to the future or quietly neutralized. And one of the ways to neutralize them is to not take any more Palestinians at all, uh, but to welcome other refugees, which Jordan certainly has in spades and generously with the Iraqi refugees in the late, the mid to late 2000s. And again, during the Syrian civil war. How have the country's electoral laws been impacted by demographic issues between Jordanians of Palestinian descent and those of East Bank background? Uh, So Jordan's election laws are another way that ambivalence about how the Jordanian state has treated Palestine and Palestinians has been expressed. And so after 1989, uh, where you have the creation of of various, you know, different kinds of electoral laws, which are amended and updated almost, you know, ad nausea every four years, you know, again, you have that, you have that ambivalence expressed. So on the one side, uh, after 89, you have an electoral system where theoretically any citizen can vote, no matter where they're, where they're from, because again, the, the question of in Jordan, uh, Minwain, Inta, right, where are you from, that is no longer a question that ought to be asked, and that's no longer a question that has immediate political relevance after the, the 80s and the 90s. You know, th- th- this is a system where anyone can vote and anyone can theoretically run. But on the other hand, there is a severe and institutionalized prejudice against those of Palestinian heritage and origin that is, in, that, that, that is encased in the, the, the electoral system. And that comes out in a few ways. One way that it, it came out quickly by the early 1990s is the districting system uh, and the proportionality of votes to seats. Uh, and this has been pointed out in, in virtually every major study of Jordan since that time period, that if you look at the ways that districting maps were drawn by the early 1990s, but in time for the 93 elections after the initial 89 elections, and you look at the number of seats allocated to the districts, 
then districts, particularly in the north and southern parts of the country, that have a preponderant population of Transjordanians and very few Palestinians living within them. And easy examples are look at Tafila, Ma'an, uh, Karak, for instance, Aqaba. They, uh, they get far more seats per vote than do heavily urban Palestinian-dominated districts, particularly those in the cities of Amman, uh, Irbid, uh, and Zarqa. So if, if, you're, you know, if, if, if you are looking to run for parliament from Karak, you need maybe 10 or 15,000 votes uh, in, you know, in the 1990s you know, to, to, to win a seat. If you were, say, someone running in district number three or four in Amman, which is heavily Palestinian, and you yourself are, happen to be Palestinian, you need 35, 40, 50,000 votes to win your seat. Uh, so the thresholds for gaining legislative representation are far different. And it's much easier to do so if you're Transjordanian. I think that is the most critical way that uh, that the electoral system has always been weighted against those of Palestinian origin and Jordan. It, it, it also reifies the urban-rural divide and a number of other, I think, schisms internally. I think the second way the electoral system embedded some pretty severe <laughs> uh, biases against Palestinians, uh, uh, those of Palestinian origin in Jordan, is from the start uh, the legal uh, the legal pressures against political parties and party mobilization and the voting system itself in terms of how Palestinians actually cast their ballots um, at the ballot box, uh, even though parties were more formally um, authorized with the prohibition against them ending um, after the early 1990s. Um, as political activists in Jordan have, have told you and me and many others who've studied the place, there has always been, since the early 90s, a litany of formal and informal constraints against those who are trying to mobilize new political parties in Jordan. Parties based not on tribal affinities, but on ideologies um, and coherent policy platforms. Um, the one exception to this is perhaps the Islamists. And the reason this matters is that you know, because in the 1950s, a number of the leftist and Arab nationalist parties in Jordan, which were on the verge, I think, of endangering uh, the bulwarks of authoritarian power under Hashemite rule by the mid to late 1950s, because these parties partly drew uh, quite heavily in many parts of the country on Palestinians, there's always been an allergy among the Jordanian leadership against encouraging uh, those in urban areas who are primarily of Palestinian origin to mobilize freely once more in politics. And one way to constrain that from the start uh, was to put pressures financially and put legal constraints and to induce political manipulations as well to make sure that political parties in Jordan never truly got off the ground. And again, the Islamists are a major exception to this, but there are a number of other cases, not just leftists and Arab nationalist parties, but uh, uh, you know, new parties in the last 10 to 15 years uh, that have tried to get off the ground and have found that legally and financially and politically, the deck has been stacked just way too much against them. Um, and they're one of, the, one of the primary recruiting grounds for membership for many parties has been Palestinian areas in Jordan, which are primarily urban areas like Amman and Irbid and, and Zarqa.
And I think the upshot of all of these prejudices is expressed by the fact that voter turnout in urban Palestinian areas has always been drastically lower than voter turnout in rural Transjordanian dominant areas. And that's, I think that's reversing that is the one thing I, I think is one of the key areas that any future democratic roadmap to the kingdom has to address. And the problem with addressing that is then you have to unpack, you know, the, the top part of the deeper social problem of ambivalence that goes back 100 years, which is if you welcome Palestinians into your country, uh, either as refugees or as citizens, then shouldn't they also have equal rights? Then would the Jordanian state and many of those who call themselves Transjordanians also be happy with eventual political outcomes which are not in their favor, whether that means the absence of a Palestinian state or a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River in which most Palestinians in Jordan do not go to, or a Jordan that continues to be demographically majority Palestinian and where economically most of the wealth continues to be concentrated in an elite Palestinian stratum. Is everyone happy with that? And Answering those questions means unpacking that ambivalence, and that's what has to be done for us to reverse, I think, these pretty deep prejudices which are still embedded in the electoral system. If a Jordanian Palestinian descent was born in Jordan and holds Jordanian citizenship, is he or she able to serve in advance within the military and intelligence services, two key areas of employment in the Hashemite Kingdom? There is no formal system of legal discrimination against those of Palestinian origin uh, and so anyone of Palestinian origin in Jordan can apply to any civil service position. They can apply to join the army. They can apply to join the security services, the interior ministry, or even hope for recruitment into the intelligence directorate. There is no legal barrier that prevents them from doing that. And indeed, if you go back to the, you know, when the segregated political economy began forming in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, there were there were never explicit legal barriers on the books that said those of Palestinian origin cannot apply or work in these agencies. But the chances are that person or persons of Palestinian origin will never get a chance to work for the state or the army or the security services, because as we know, unfortunately, discrimination flourishes in the shadows uh, outside the margins of law. That's the way it works in the United States. That's the way it works in the European Union. And that's unfortunately how it works in places like Jordan. There are uh, an, an immense, I'd say, um, degree of informal discrimination that still occurs in the Jordanian state in which if a Palestinian applicant submits an application to work uh, for a, the civil service, or and, and, and this still is the case in some universities as well, in certain degree programs. Uh, this is the case in some parts of the economy that, that uh, remain what political economists call transordanian preserves. This is certainly the case with the police, with the Darak, uh, with the intelligence directorate. This is certainly the case of the military. Um, you know, that Palestinian applicant will never make it through the screening process. Although the military, the Jordanian Armed Forces, remains largely still uh, staffed by an almost exclusively Transjordanian workforce in terms of its manpower and so forth. It's not as if if you're a Transjordanian, you know, serving in the military is a birthright and that they'll take you whenever you want. You have to apply. 
you know, it, you don't simply work there as a matter of life course. And competition for spots in the military is quite fierce. In, in, in some years, the ratio of applicants to spots available can be as bad as 10 to 1 or 15 to 1. And so there already is a major job crunch among those institutions that traditionally only employ Transjordanians. And so a Palestinian applicant has to face that from the start, right? That's number one. Number two is that there's unfortunately, as I said before, too much informal discrimination occurring among those who are screening applications and those who remember some uglier parts of Palestinian Transjordanian history, such as Black September. And the chances are the informality of that prejudice will mean that those Palestinian applicants will never truly make it through, uh, which is a real shame, I think. And I would also say those sentiments are not I, you know, are not shared by everyone of, 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 of Transjordanian origin. I think it's very easy to make gross generalizations when we talk about this topic. Um, but there are many Transjordanians that, you know, you know, and I know who disagree both with the history of discrimination and want to do away with it and just don't see the question of origin as relevant anymore in contemporary politics. And But unfortunately, Many of those people, many of our colleagues, uh, are not the ones making the decisions in the hiring offices or in uh, in the general command staff of the Jordanian Armed Forces. And so it remains that if you're a Pal if you're a Jordanian citizen of Palestinian origin, even though there are no formal legal barriers against you joining any part of the Jordanian state informally uh, and also economically, as the numbers have it, you will probably never work for these institutions um, because of discrimination and the existing jobs crunch, uh, job crunch and so forth. Did identity politics impact protest movements against the government in 2011 during the start of the Arab Spring? They did, but not in the traditional way as we would understand them. There was not overtly a, you know, anti-Palestinian, for instance, a, a, a pro-democracy, but anti-Palestinian movement that arose in Jordan in this time period. Most of the protests in Jordan during the Arab Spring were consistently around a set of factors that uh, still resonate today. Factors like ending facade or corruption, uh, desiring more islah or democratic reforms, uh, wanting more economic dignity, more opportunity, a general sense of anxiety about the future combined with enthusiasm about the possibilities of change driven by the excitement of democratization happening at the time of Tunisia. But if you go beneath the surface, so that's that's the first layer of the answer that, you know, no, it wasn't as if you could easily identify protests because some some protesters said we're Palestinians first and we want democracy. And other protesters said we're Transjordanians first. We hate the Palestinians and we want democracy. That That is not the case. But underneath the surface, there are nuances of identity politics that continue to suffuse uh, the protests happening in various parts of the country. So if you go to rural areas like and you look at the Harak movements, the uh, the grassroots tribal youth movements that were mobilizing at the time, some of those movements did traffic, unfortunately, in some of the outdated anti-Palestinian xenophobia uh, that kind of characterized Jordanian-Palestinian identity politics from the 60s and 70s. Uh, some of that xenophobia manifested, for instance, in some veiled statements, for instance, against, um, I would say, some members of the royal family, uh, because who are not themselves Transjordanian and are Palestinian in origin. Uh, some of them, when they talked about corruption, 
often pointing the fingers to certain Palestinian individuals as first and foremost as the leaders of corruption um, in Jordan. But that being said, there were many other tribal Harak movements that didn't traffic in any identity politics discourse and simply clothed their demands for democracy and dignity and equality in much more universalistic overtones. But by and large, most protests over the last decade have not been about identity politics per se. Well, that will be all for today. Thank you very much, Professor. No, it's uh, my pleasure, Aaron. That was Professor Sean Young. Here's what else you should know this week. A Jordanian military officer was killed, and three other Jordanian personnel were injured on Sunday after drug smugglers attempted to enter the Hashemite kingdom from Syria. According to Reuters, Jordanian officials blame Hezbollah and other militant groups in southern Syria for smuggling Captagon amid a spike in drug smuggling from the kingdom's northern border during the past year. Also, Jordan's foreign minister, Ayman Safadi, visited Washington last week and met with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, along with Democratic and Republican senators on Capitol Hill. In an interview with CNN, Safadi said the United States continues to be a very solid partner and true friend of Jordan. With the annual U.S. aid package to Jordan of nearly $1.5 billion about to expire, a key part of Safadi's trip was for Amman to obtain a quote-unquote new and improved deal, according to Daoud Kutab and Axios. Before I go, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google, or Apple Podcasts to make sure you're notified of new episodes. And feel free to listen to previous week's episodes on the April Sedition Affair with Professor Basma Momani and Jordan's Water for Energy deal with Israel, including analysis by Oriah Brantali. Finally, if you're listening to the podcast, especially if you live in Jordan and think you'd be a great guest, please reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Magid or via email aaron.magid1 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.